Today, we discuss the growing economic turmoil around the globe as prices of essential commodities increase and transportation networks start to break down. What is causing these problems? Could they lead to a broader crisis just as the world economy is trying to emerge from the shadow of COVID? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are happy to have Professor Richard Wolff join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content Three days a week, thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Professor Wolf, we're going to talk, as I mentioned in the introduction, about the stubborn increase in the price of essential commodities, basic commodities. For multiple months, the Federal Reserve and other financial authorities, including your friend, Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen, were predicting that this was kind of a bump in the road, that things were going to sort out, that the sort of over-demand or hyped-up demand after the long period of COVID would start to diminish, the supply shortages would sort themselves out. Well, each month, the prediction seems to be mm, a bit further and further off, and we want to talk about that. But one of the things I want to start with first, and we don't have to spend much time on it, but I do want to mention it to you because one of our listeners, you know, a lot of people listen to the show for the first time. We hear from listeners that they're hearing you for the first time. They're excited about it. Hopefully they come back. There are other people, a bigger segment of our listenership that are really, you know, they are regulars. They listen to the show regularly. They enjoy it. They use it in terms of their own work, their own organizing. Well, one of our listeners is an organizer here in the Washington, D.C. area where I am, and she's really with tenants in the trenches trying to save affordable housing units predominantly or in some cases exclusively from black working class families, families who have been there for generations and, you know, they're working day in and day out. I mean, it's a real day in and day out battle to keep these tenants in their homes. And the tenants are the leaders. These are really inspiring stories of housing activists. And she asked us to ask you to comment in a practical way 
What is likely to happen now that we see that 1.4 million American families expect, according to a Yahoo News survey, expect to be evicted in the next two months? And the story goes on to say that that number is multiplied by a factor of maybe five. In other words, maybe as many as 10 or 11 million families may be facing eviction. And these folks are behind in the rent, some of them by one month, sometimes two months. Many now are behind five months, six months. And she just wanted to know your opinion. What's likely to happen? What will the government do? Is this you know, something unprecedented? And what should we do? What should the people do in response? Anyway, let's start there, and then we'll get on to the other story about inflation. Well, let me respond this way. We are in an unprecedented time. So while it is always useful to look at the past, to see what lessons similar situations in the past might have to teach us. We also have to be open to realize that we have never been in this place exactly before. And that's the necessary context to talk about housing, rentals, evictions, and everything else. So let me be clear. We have had economic crashes before, and we have had public health disasters before, but we have never had a public health disaster on the scale of COVID-19 at the same time as an economic crash on the scale of the 1930s Great Depression. That's what we are living through right now. And all of the comforting rhetoric from Janet Yellen or Joe Biden or the Republicans, none of that should be taken seriously. They do not know any better than we do what quite to do in this situation because it is in very important ways worse than anything we have faced as a nation in the past because of this combination of a public health disaster that has no parallel in American history. Up until last month, we talked about the so-called Spanish flu in 1918 as the worst viral pandemic in American history. That's no longer the case. We broke that record. We're on our own in uncharted territory. And the same thing is true for our economy. That's why you have unprecedented phenomena all around us. The government has printed and introduced into the economy more money in a short number of years than has ever happened in American history. Another sign that we're in unprecedented territory. The last three major wars that this country undertook, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, have all been major defeats for the United States military. That is also a new one in American history. I could go on, but here's the point. In the past, I would have said to you, they will not let an eviction of 10 million American families 
possibly happen because it would plunge those families into a level of poverty and misery, not to speak of vulnerability to this virus, which is very much alive amongst us and is something you need to have your own home to be safe from. So I would have said they can't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't dare. When you remember that the people occupying the homes that are at risk of eviction are also the people who often have physical and mental health issues, who also have low incomes and insecure jobs, you can see that very quickly adding to these folks' problems, eviction, takes them or many of them over the edge into a level of misery and poverty which has no parallel in American history. The closest would be the Great Depression. And I want to remind people, if you have ever been asked to read books like The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck or Of Mice and Men by the same author, you will have had a glimpse into the level of misery of the Okies and the other folks across America who lost their homes, who lost their jobs, as so many millions did in the Great Depression. They suffered unspeakably, as those novels document. That would be what we are condemning tens of millions, because remember, each of the families evicted have multiple people. 10 million families is 30 to 40 to 50 million people. It will transform the United States into a land which is already characterized by extreme inequality, which will then become worse. Now to answer the question with that context. Everything now depends on politics, which is what it comes down to. Will the people who run this society, the big businesses, number one, and the politicians who are mostly in their pocket, number two, will they feel entitled? Will they feel safe in letting these evictions proceed? They are testing the waters. The Republicans have wanted to evict for months. The Biden administration stalled it off repeatedly, but basically has now decided to take a gamble to let the ban on evictions end, as you know. And so they're looking to see right now what the opposition is they face. This has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with intervention by the government to stop this. That's easy. It's quick. It's not the issue. The question now is purely political. Will someone organize those at risk of eviction now, next week, next month, at the end of the year, or not? Will the people who are organizing those at risk of eviction 
find allies among the rest of us who don't face eviction, but who do not want to live in a society that treats its people this way. Will that alliance emerge? And will it be strong enough to threaten the system as a whole with a whole new level of criticism and opposition and bitterness and division? If you, the organizers, can mount an adequate political opposition, then this eviction will not happen. If you cannot or you do not, then it will. And that's the same question that basically faces everybody else in this society at this point. American capitalism is at a very profound crossroads. The ride up of the late 18th into the 19th and 20th centuries, the rising period of American capitalism is now over. I know that's difficult to understand. It's difficult to get our heads around it. But we are at risk of not seeing it and therefore making terribly dangerous strategic mistakes. One of those mistakes is the decision of the people who run this society to actually consider evicting 10 million people from their homes. But the other side of the same mistake is for those of us who oppose all of this not to understand that this system is now very fragile. It cannot afford to do to its poorer people what it now imagines it has to do. You know, this last week was the revelation that the richest among us, both in the United States and globally, have been hiding trillions of dollars in the British Virgin Islands, here in the United States, in South Dakota, Nevada, and other states, hiding that money so that their voters, if they're politicians, don't see them, hiding that money if they're billionaires so they can escape the little bit of taxes they still have to pay. But their illegal and unethical hiding of money has taught us all a lesson. The money is there. The money to avoid evictions, to give money to the landlords so that they don't die, and to pay off the rents due for the people who need not go into eviction. The money is there. Only the political will will determine whether that money is used or not to stop the evictions. Last comment. The Communist Party of the United States achieved quite a reputation in the 1930s for the way it handled evictions. It worked something like this. When a family was notified, the eviction was about to happen. Neighbors would gather, usually organized by the Communist Party. And as soon as the sheriff came and moved the family's furniture out onto the street and then got into their cars and drove away, the neighbors would gather, break the lock, 
and move all the furniture right back in. Neighborhood by neighborhood, house by house, apartment by apartment. And after a while, the police had to report to their superiors. They could not do anything about it because if they provoked the people who gathered, it would be the police against all the neighborhoods because the Communist Party understood that the way to mobilize the neighborhood was to have everybody understand if you permit any evictions, you soon will be next. That's exactly where we are now. The evictions are the tip of an iceberg. The trick is to teach the rest of the American people to make a stand against the evictions, even if you yourself are not the one. Because what is being done to those who can't pay rent is also being contemplated for those who cannot pay the rising price of food or the rising price of gasoline, or the rising price of fuel oil, because all of those are breaking out at the high end. This is a system that is broken, and all of these events are linked to the reality of a system whose peak is behind us. That's why all the noise about China Because as this system declines, that one is rising, and that freaks out the people at the top just as much as anything else. But that's the real context within which the strategies have to be worked out to fight the political battle. Don't let anyone tell you that the economics are what is key here. I'm a professional economist. I've been a teacher of it all my life. I can assure you, economics is not the issue. Professor Richard Wolf, very, very, very wise words. I know that those of us who are involved in the socialist program, who bring this content three days a week, we're also involved in a movement called canceltherents.org. That's the website, Cancel the Rents. Last weekend, We had actions in 61 places, 55 cities, 61 actions. Some of the, in LA, there were three or four. We're meeting families who are being evicted as we are making protests and demanding that the moratoriums be extended or that the government take action, meaning, you know, the the 65, 67 billion dollars that's owed in back rent by all of these families. That's the number. It's really about 8% of the U.S. defense budget. So we're in the streets, we're organizing, we're trying to create a firestorm of protest and things don't happen all at once. But the fact that we were able to have on the same weekend, 61 actions in 55 cities is a good start. And we did meet families and those families are facing eviction. And we started doing exactly what you are talking about and what happened in the 1930s to say, look, to the folks who are being evicted, first, we're going to try to help you get money because there is money that's been allocated but not dispersed to help cover some of the back rent. So we're going through the legal process, the administrative process. But if that doesn't work, and you're going to be evicted, and you are being evicted at the moment that there's a COVID pandemic, 
It's unethical. It's immoral. It's wrong. It's unnecessary. And we're going to help you and your neighbors band together to do exactly what you said. In other words, to defend against evictions. So this is the process that has been started. And of course, we're all committed to it. And I think as more and more people realize the gravity and dimension of it, more and more people will join. You know, when you're being evicted, it's a very personal matter. It's you, but maybe your neighbor's not being evicted. Maybe the next five neighbors are not being evicted. So you really do feel alone and it's your debt. It's your unpaid rent. So the whole idea in this kind of struggle is to bring people out of isolation, out of the sense of isolation, and to create the sense that their eviction and that their coming homelessness is not inevitable, that it can actually be stopped precisely as you're describing by politics, by mobilization, by organization, that it's pretty standard, old style, grassroots kind of organizing. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that before we get on to our other topic here, which dovetails with the last point that you made, which is about inflation. It's not only rents that have gone up so sky high in recent years, housing prices are way up. There's also, when you go to the gas station, the price of a gallon of gas is a dollar more than it was a year ago. Anybody who does their own shopping knows that the cost of food has gone way up in the last year. And in the inflation indexes, I think food and energy are excluded. Anyway, you can help us understand that. But I'm looking at the Guardian article uh, from a couple of days ago, a perfect storm supply chain crisis could blow world economy off course. Of course, for the people who are about to be evicted, the world economy's already been blown off course. But here's the subtitle, from Liverpool to LA, shortages of energy, labor, and transport are threatening recovery from COVID. Anyway, it's kind of like this, how could this possibly have happened? We were on the way, everything was getting better. But I want to read a couple sentences and then ask you one question in particular. It was all going so well. Successful vaccination programs were driving the post-pandemic recovery of the global economy. Stock markets were back at record highs and prices were rising just enough to make deflation fears a thing of the past. But a supply crunch that initially put a question mark over the availability of luxury cars or whether there would be enough playstations under our Christmas trees is instead morphing into a full-blown crisis featuring a shortage of energy, labor, and transport from Liverpool to Los Angeles and all over the world. Anyway, what's causing the inflation? Is this a problem of too much demand, pent-up demand? In other words, the problem of abundance leading to crisis? Anyway, let's try to break this down. Of course, it's a big topic. We only have you know, about seven, eight minutes left, but let's just understand the dynamic of what's being described, at least in the articles like The Guardian, a supply shortage-driven inflationary trend that is now truly global in character. Okay. In order to get at this in the short time that we have, I'm going to be blunt rather than wordy, if you will allow me. This explanation that the inflation we're facing is somehow imposed on all of us by some mystical remark about shortages, 
you know, as if somehow the sun stopped shining and so the plants don't grow or the cows don't give milk or the machines mysteriously stop is simply economic nonsense. Don't believe it for a minute. Here's the basics. Prices are determined by capitalists. Workers do not determine the prices of the products they produce. Their employers set the prices. They decide when to raise them, when to lower them, when to keep them the same. So you have to begin by understanding that if there's an inflation, if prices of the items you mentioned, food, energy, rents, houses, and so on are rising, that's because the sellers of those goods, which are overwhelmingly employers, a very small minority of the population are the employers, but they have an extraordinary power to set prices. Number two, when they raise prices in order to make more profits, they never say we're raising the prices to make more profits. And the reason they don't say that is that it doesn't sound good to the public who has to buy what they produce. The public might be angry or resistant or bitter or critical if they are being told we the employers a small minority want to make more profits so we're gonna jack up the price we charge you that would not be good public relations so it is necessary for the employers as a class to come up with other arguments for why the prices are going up, especially arguments that point the finger of blame somewhere else rather than on the employer who, in fact, raised the price. So here we go. Candidate. It is international supply chains. We bring goods from far away and there are um, interferences. Workers abroad are not working the way they should. Companies abroad are not delivering the way. In other words, we, the employer who just raised the price, we are not the ones to blame. It's somebody else. Don't believe this. It is just an attempt to get you to think of someone to blame other than the capitalist who sets the price. Third point, why would capitalists these days want to raise the price and therefore the profit? And the answer here is very simple. We are coming out of almost two years now of COVID-19 plus a global capitalist crash that is blamed, by the way, of course, on the disease, even though it started here in the United States a month before the disease even hit here. But we are in a situation where most employers have had a bad couple of years, 
2020 wasn't good and 2021 wasn't all that much better. They want to raise prices to recoup the profits they didn't get over the last 18 to 24 months. That's their motivation. They want to make up for what they lost, just like the rest of us want to, but they're in a position to do something about it. So they raise prices and that gives them the extra profits that compensates them for what they didn't get over the last 18 months. But of course, they don't want to say that to you. They want to tell you, oh, I have to raise the price because my costs went up. Well, here's two things to keep in mind. The only way to know whether arguments like that have even a grain of truth is to actually view the books of the companies saying that. And they never show you the books because they're not required to by law. They keep their own accounts private. So you're being asked to take their word that they didn't raise the price to recoup their profits, which I believe they did, but instead it was forced on them by the long supply chains. Final point. Yes, it's true. We do have long supply chains. We have corporations who produce in India, in China, in Brazil, far away. And that adds all kinds of risks and interruptions and costs to bringing all those goods here. But let's please remember why production was moved out of the United States to China, India, Brazil, and so on. It was that tiny minority, the employer class, who thought they could make greater profits by relocating their facilities, their offices, their stores, their factories overseas, far away. And now they want to be able to raise their prices because their profit-driven decision to move abroad is turning out not to be the genius stroke they used to make believe it was. Those are the people, the people who run this economy, who are making everything we're watching happen. The inflation, the evictions, it goes on and on. They are taking care of themselves, a minority, at the expense and cost of the rest of us. And the only political question that remains is whether we, the majority, will permit them to continue to do this. I think that's so, so important because the sense one gets when one reads the newspapers, the general interest newspapers, the financial pages, you get the sense that everything that's happening is inevitable, almost like an act of God, right. something that is here now and always will be. And the point that you're making, Richard, I think is so important is that this isn't inevitable. It's not an act of God. It's not an act of nature. There are human beings making these decisions, and those human beings have all of this economic power, not because they're smarter, not because they work harder. It's because they own the property. And then you have this anarchy of production, the anarchy of global supply lines, and of course, their ability to raise prices in order to expand their profits. And we are told there's nothing we can do about it. It's inevitable. Just accept it because 
it is like an act of God. Anyway, last 30 seconds, you get the last word. Well, I think people are beginning to have to face, which is why I'm beginning to say it in my public activity, that this is an economic system that is in decline. And it's difficult for us, and we shouldn't blame ourselves as a people. It's hard to live in a system that's declining. It was much easier, even with its difficulties, before when it was rising. But we're going to have to face that in a declining capitalism, those who sit at the top, the big businesses, the minority class of employers, are in a much better position to make the rest of us bear the costs of decline than we are in making them bear the costs of a decline that they are mostly responsible for. But that is the political issue. Will we, the majority, permit them, the employer minority, to offload the costs of a declining capitalism onto the rest of us? It doesn't have to happen. It doesn't have to be that way. And it's up to us to determine not to permit it. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's r-d-w-o-l-f-f.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow with The Real Story. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. <laughs>